0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray with me. Lord, we do ask that you would bless your word today. We are so fortunate to be able to sit together in a place and learn of you, and to fellowship with one another and just to involve ourselves in each other's lives. And just ask, Father, that the things that we do learn we will not be like the book of James, where we learn the things, look in the mirror, and walk away forgetting the things that we've learned, but we would put the things into practice that we learn. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we now come closer to the end of David's life, the words he says are the words of a man who knows his God. And in the end, that is really the only thing that matters. A TV reporter once said, tonight we'll be looking at the buy and selling of the world's most valuable commodity, information. He was right. Information is the world's most valuable commodity. For example, if you have information about where oil deposits are, you can overnight become Jed Clampett, black gold, Texas tea. Guess what song's gonna be stuck in your head the rest of the day? but information can even save your life. If you're in a building that is on fire and you know the location of the fire escapes, you can find your way out. Without that information, you may die. And so your actions will be governed by information, what you know and what you don't know. The principle is demonstrated by the story of a man who wanted to paint his steep, a frame roof. As his ladder was too short to reach to the top, He threw a thick rope over the roof, went around to the front, and carefully secured the rope to the back of his car. You're thinking, what could possibly go wrong? Anyway, then he went to the back of the house, climbed up on the roof, tied the rope firmly around his waist, and began painting. His wife, not knowing what he had done, came out of the house with car keys in hand. She then got into the car and drove off, pulling her poor husband (laughs) off the top of the roof, and seriously injuring him. Well, at least she said she didn't know he was up there. Guess we'll never know. But anyhow, some people have no problem in believing in things like evolution or the normality of gender transitioning. But remember, the things that you believe will govern your actions. Case in point, if you believe a drink contains poison, you will not drink it. And if you believe the Bible is just a book of myths and fairy tales, then you won't repent. Why would you? But like the man who secured himself to that car, you will find you're only as secure as that to which you have secured yourself. If your faith is based in things like your own good works and not in God's promises, you will find that what you have tied yourself to will be to your eternal collapse. That person will perish because they refuse information that would have saved not only their lives, but far more importantly, their soul. And so David is taking all the information he has learned about God and fashioned his life around those things that he has learned. Look at verse 30 with me. For by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. In verse 30, David says, I can run against a troop and I can leap over a wall. From his early days as a shepherd boy, David killed a lion and a bear that was threatening his flock. From those exploits, he faced down Goliath when everyone else was shaking in their sandals. And one thing I love about David was his willingness to always seize the moment. He didn't always play it safe. And I admire that about him. I mean, none of us knows how long we have on this earth. So why not take a chance and truly live our one shot at this life? Or in the words of Irma Bombeck, seize the moment. Remember all those people on the Titanic that waved away the dessert cart. In verse 31, David tells us that God's ways are perfect. His word is proven and it is a shield to those who trust in him. These things have come about because they are true in David's life. God took him through the circumstances in life in which he would be forced to learn these things. Now, given the chance, you might not sign up for this. Quite honestly, I would rather learn all these things by correspondence course. In my flesh, I don't want to learn these things firsthand. I don't want to have to be put in a situation where I need rescuing. I don't want to have to be in battle so severe that I need a shield instead of walking in the spirit in the seasons of testing I would sort of prefer to just veg in the spirit but one of the most important lessons for us to learn is that as hard as circumstances can be there is that recognition that we have that no matter what else is happening one thing we do know no matter how difficult the circumstances no matter how painful they cause us to know God in a way that we could not know otherwise. And so it's kind of a package deal. Trials and tribulations are the things that God uses to mature and deepen our faith. And so we heard David say back in verse five that the waves of death are surrounding me. And I'm sure he was thinking, this is it. This is the one trial I will not get out of alive. It's interesting. When those are just words on a page, we read it and say, that's so very poetic. I love the Psalms. But it's an entirely different thing when over and over again, David found himself in circumstances where he would have to say to himself, I am not going to survive this. I had a pretty good run, but this will be the day that I die. And really, problems, difficulties, and hardships can either leave us bitter or better. And the only difference between bitter and better is a letter I, as in, what am I going to do about this? It's really up to us to determine whether how we will respond or react to any given situation. When faced with various difficulties, some people grumble, some gripe, some groan, some grieve. Some growl, but some grow. And that is the group that we want to be included in. And David was one who grew through his problems. How did he do it? He was one who kept coming back to the hope that he had in God. Verse 32, please. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. Life is unbearable without hope. Our motivation to live depends on a belief that there is something worth living for. To be without hope is to be overtaken by despair. While the thoughts we have about the future are often misguided, as in we think, something good will surely happen, or desperate, something good has to happen, or deluded, simply like those who think that reality is something I just prefer not to think about. Without some kind of hope, it is difficult to carry on. The Bible teaches that the proper way for human beings to have hope is to know God. God is described as the God of hope, and those who know God are meant to abound in hope. Romans 15:13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Now, this hope is not complacency, like instead of worrying, I just don't care, nor is it like op- optimism thinking every cloud is a silver lining. The hope of which the Bible speaks of comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit is the power of God's promises. Do you know this hope? Does this hope shape your life? As David comes nearing the end of his journey, he's realizing that the hope he has placed in God was a well-founded hope. David says, I'm nearing the end and I can confidently proclaim, Who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? He's made my way perfect and sets my feet securely on high places. If you want to read a great book on verse 34, back in 1955, Hannah Hennard wrote a book called Hind's Feet on High Places. It's a Christian classic I would offer for your consideration. But Now, wait a minute. Let's be sure we understand what David is saying here. David does not say, Lord, you make me so strong that everything is always smooth sailing. David endured some very tough times, times when he was weak and wasn't sure he would even survive the trial. David often lived as a fugitive, an outcast, and a nobody. For every time David felt like he could run like a deer and leap over a wall. There were many other times when he could just keep plodding along, but he always knew it wasn't his own strength that kept him going. It was God's strength. That's the kind of strength God wants to give you and me. It's the power to persevere, even those times we feel like giving up. It's the strength to keep going when you would rather call it quits. Sometimes it's the strength just to get up in the morning, to put one feeble foot in front of the other. Sometimes it's just enough strength to get you up after you have fallen again. In my own life, there have been times when I have aggressively fought the battles of life using the shield of faith. But there were also times when I was so weak, all I could do was lie under that shield. And God's power sometimes comes to us in small doses. But it's always enough power to help us make it through. So I ask you, do you need that power today? Are you feeling weak and helpless, wondering how you will keep going? Take courage. If you will lift up your hands to the Lord and call on him, he will strengthen you. Some days you feel like you can leap over a wall. And other days you won't feel like kicking so high. Where will the strength come from, though, when you have no strength left? David says, if you're a Christian, it will come from the Lord. That's why he sings this song. Is David singing your song this morning? Can you honestly look at your relationship with Christ and truthfully say, He is my Savior, He is my righteousness, and He is my strength. Today, if the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart and you need to make sure everything is right between you and the Lord, then I urge you to do something today. I urge you to come to Christ just as you are, And ask him to give you his righteousness and ask him to be your strength, for he will always answer that prayer. Verse 35, please. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarge my path under me so my feet did not slip. David says in verse 35 that the Lord teaches my hands to make war. Some people say that passages like this only prove that the Bible is a warmongering book that has caused the death of millions. And if we could just get rid of it and follow the dictates of humanism, then we could all live in a utopian society free of all conflict. I guess the most famous song concerning this would be John Lennon's song, Imagine. Listen to the verses. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. The problem with that is just by imagining things has no effect on reality. Also for Lenin, part of what would make this world a paradise would be if Christianity was extinct. That's a growing and very popular opinion today, by the way. If we could just get of all religion and learn to work together, things would be much better. That initially sounds good, but is it practical and would it work? Now this is going to date me, but here's another song that longs for an ideal world where we could all just get along. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. That's the real thing. Not exactly Longfellow, is it? <laughs> but once again, that sounds great to the uninitiated ear, but here's the problem. Some people hate Coke and prefer Pepsi. Now what are we going to do? You see, complex issues can't be answered with songs and commercial limericks. The issues are complicated and run far deeper than that. So is religion really the cause of all the evil and warmongering in the world? Actually, just the opposite is true. Os Guinness, in a chapter entitled Evil in the Examined Life, writes this. The worst modern atrocities were perpetrated by secularist regimes led by secularist intellectuals in the name of secularist beliefs. Secularist is difficult to say three times in a row. (laughs) I said that part, not Os Guinness. He continues by saying the fact runs directly counter to today's ruling orthodoxy in educated circles in the West. And yet many make the opposite claim. In his book, A Devil's Chaplain, popular atheist Richard Dawkins writes, Only the willfully blind fails to implicate the various forces of religion in most, if not all, the violent hatreds of the world today. Guinness then makes this point. But an analysis of modern massacres and genocides from the young Turks through Stalin and Mao Zedong to Pol Pot reveals a fact that is stunning, yet vital for public discussion. Because more people in the 20th century were killed by secular regimes than in all the religious persecutions in Western history combined. So, is true Christianity the cause of wars? Not according to history. Now there is such a thing as a just war, but we don't have time to cover that. If you have any questions concerning that, see Tom Hamlin directly after service and he will take you to lunch and explain it. (laughs) I didn't clear that with him, but he's a good cat. This week I learned about a game called Pocket God. It's one of the top selling games for Apple's iPhone. Here's the game description found on iTunes. What kind of God would you be? Benevolent or vengeful? Play Pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. On a remote island, you are the all-powerful God that rules over the primitive islanders you can bring new life and then take it away just as quickly. Some of the game options include throwing Islanders into volcanoes, using Islanders as shark bait, bowling for Islanders with a large rock, or creating earthquakes to destroy the Islanders village. Now that tells me that designers seem to think players will only want to play the role of a vengeful God, which must mean they only think that's the kind of God players can ever imagine being real. They certainly can't conceive of a God who would give his only son to die for the villagers. But I love verse 36. David says, you've given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness has made me great. That remarkable statement, your gentleness has made me great, reveals David's utter amazement that Almighty God would condescend to pay any attention to him. David never ceased to marvel that God would call him to become the king of Israel, to lead God's people, fight God's battles, and even help to write God's word. It was through David's descendants that God brought the Messiah into the world. Now, from the human point of view, David was a nobody, a shepherd, the youngest of eight sons in an ordinary Jewish family. But the Lord stooped down to make him great. And so David doesn't look back upon his life and all those difficult years of exile and see the hardness of God, but the gentleness of God. He saw only goodness and mercy following him. David would also write this in Psalm 103, 13. Just as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He remembers that we are only dust. I think that will be true for everyone who truly followed God during this pilgrimage on earth. No matter how hard things sometimes were, as we look back over our lives, I think we will be overwhelmed by how faithful and gentle the Lord has been with us. As we have studied this chapter, you can see what has thrilled the heart of David. He saw God and mentioned him at least 19 times. He saw God in the affairs of life, both the happy occasions and the storms that came. He saw God's purpose in his life in the nation of Israel and just rejoiced to be part of it. But the most exciting thing of all is in spite of all the troubles that David had experienced, he still saw the gentle hand of God molding his life and accomplishing his purposes. He seems to go back in his mind to his shepherd days and in the gentleness in which he would deal with the feeble lamb. And he found in that an emblem of God's method in dealing with himself. For if God had not dealt gently with him, he never would have became who he was. David in verse 37 thanks God for enlarging the path under his feet so they wouldn't slip. Now, why would the Lord need to do something like that? One early church father wrote, The further the soul advances, the greater are the adversaries against which it must contend. And so because of that, we need to walk worthy of the vocation of which we have been called without slipping back into our old ways. Like I said last week, there was a reason why we decided to leave our old lives in the first place. There was simply no life there. Verse 38. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so they cannot rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You also have given me the necks of my enemies so that I have destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. Now we might initially cringe as we read David's description of this violence over that he got his victories from. But we must remember that he is fighting the battles of the Lord. If these nations had defeated and destroyed Israel, what would have happened to God's great plan of salvation? Well, for starters, we wouldn't have a Bible and we wouldn't have a savior. In rebelling against the Lord and worshiping idols, these pagans had sinned against a flood of light. So they were without excuse. We also need to remember the Lord was incredibly patient with them for many years. 400 years in the case of the Amorites. But they spurned his grace and they mocked his kindness. And so David pursued his enemies when they tried to get away. He defeated them, crushed them, ground them into the dirt until they became like dust in the streets. But notice in verse 40, David realizes it was the Lord That once again armed him for battle. David was one of the greatest warriors in human history, but he completely understood that his victories ultimately came from the hand of the Lord. Now, sometimes that had been obvious, like the day on which David as a youth had confronted Goliath. David explained that he survived such threats, not because he was wily and cunning, though he was, not because he became a brilliant military strategist, which he did, not because he was just fortunate, Although again and again, things happened just in time to save his life. No, says David, the truth was that it was the Lord who rescued him. And that's great news for us. Because we also have an enemy that we need to be rescued from. Listen to the words of John Knox concerning this. He wrote, Mark what has been the practice of the devil from the beginning most cruelly to rage against God's children when God begins to show them mercy. And therefore, marvel not, dearly beloved, though this should happen to you. If Satan fume and roar against you, whether it be against your bodies by persecution or inwardly in your consciences by spiritual battle, do not be discouraged, as though you were less acceptable in God's presence, or that Satan might at any time prevail against you. No, I have good hope, and my prayer will likewise be, that you may be so strengthened that the world and Satan himself may understand and perceive that it is God who is fighting your battle. I say praise the Lord for that. Verse 47 for a couple comments and then we'll be done. (coughs) The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Paul quoted verse 50 in Romans 15, 9, as part of his wrap up of his admonition to the believers there in the churches at Rome, that they receive one another and stop judging one another. You see, the Gentile believers in Rome were enjoying their freedom in Christ, while many of the Jewish believers were still under bondage to the law of Moses. And so Paul points out that Christ came to minister to both Jews and Gentiles by fulfilling God's promises to the Jews and dying for both Jews and Gentiles. From the very beginning of the nation, when God called Abraham, the Lord had it in his mind, to include the Gentiles in his gracious plan of salvation. A.W. Tozer, when meditating on this passage, came to the conclusion that the more he learned about God, the more God proved himself over and over again in his life. This was Tozer's evidence that he needed to respond by exalting God even more in his life. If you think about it, people all the time are exalting things like diet plans that work for them, movies they liked, and books that may have touched them. But this God of ours ought to be highly exalted in our life at every turn. Really, worship is simply this. It is seeing what God is worth and then giving Him what He is worth. Tozer, inspired by our scripture today, wrote this prayer in his book, The Pursuit of God, which I will close with. He writes, O oh God, Be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasure shall seem dear unto me, if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. I am determined that thou shalt be above all, though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Be thou exalted above my comforts, though it mean the loss of bodily comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses. I shall keep my vow made this day before thee. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee, even if as a result I must sink in obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. Rise, O Lord, into the proper place of honor, above my ambitions, above my likes and dislikes, above my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me decrease that thou mayest increase. Let me sink that thou mayest rise above. Ride forth upon me as thou didst ride into Jerusalem, mounted upon the humble little beast, a colt. And let me hear the children cry to thee, Hosanna in the highest. I say, do that, O Lord, at Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Lord, that is our desire. And that is not our desire. I pray you would make it our desire. For following you and serving you is truly the best way to live. So be with us this week, Lord. Draw us even closer. Help us to walk in your spirit and make a difference in this world. We ask in Christ's name, amen.